Hello, this is Chris Humphreys, and you are listening to The Bill Podcast. Thanks very much to Chris, who we pounded the beat with in the last podcast. This time, we're heading up to CID to chat to a marvellous actor who played one of Sunhill's finest for 10 years. We met in a very pleasant pub. I'm sure you won't mind the odd sound of a dishwasher being loaded and, true to form, the odd siren. So I'm delighted now to be joined by a true Sunhill legend. And when we first met this man, he was playing his clarinet in CID, and now his tunes have a slightly different sound. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you'll be as delighted as I am. Please welcome to the Bill Podcast, Mr. Andrew McIntosh. Thank you very much, Oliver. <laughs> I mean, I've loved <laughs> dipping into your, your music, and it's via the music we've been able to meet up today via your website. So tell me about bloody good music. How did that begin? Okay, so my wife is called Cathy Dooley, originally. She's now Mrs. McIntosh, of course. <laughs> but she was a part of a pop group in the late 70s, early 80s, a family group called the Dooleys. And they had a number of hits, including Wanted, which was their top hit, which was at number three. And she comes from a very large family, so six of the brothers and sisters were in the group together at different times. But one brother, Joe, decided not to be in the band. He decided to be sensible and went off and uh, took a university degree and so forth. But he, like all his brothers and sisters, is very musical. After a while, Joe and I thought, well, it might be quite fun to do a couple of little gigs together, see how we get on. Uh, within about the space of a fortnight, Joe had got a gig in a local pub, so we kind of, we desperately practised like mad and then did this not very good gig. And then from that, we decided we'd continue, and we'd been doing it for 20 years or so together. And we were, early on, we were playing in some pub somewhere in West Berkshire, and there was an old fella sitting in the corner and he, at the end of one song he went, that's bloody good music, that. <laughs> bloody good music. And I thought, ah, I'm going to use that. So I bought the domain name bloodygoodmusic.co.uk and then we've always kind of advertised ourselves as Joe Dooley and Andrew McIntosh bloody good music. music. There was one time when we were going out every Friday night, every Saturday night and it was kind of, got too busy then. And then we thought, well, it'd be nice to start doing some of our own stuff that we've written through the decades. So we produced this album along with our nephew, who's called Stephen Caulfield, who is very talented as a producer and also as a musician in his own right. He has a couple of albums that he's released. And he's just got better and better and better at music production as the years have gone by. So we're, so this particular album is a little rough around the edges, but... Album two, which is due out soon, uh, we hope is going to have a lot more production value, be a little bit slicker. Are you a self-taught musician? Uh, not exactly. <clears throat> Clarinet was always my kind of academic instrument. That's the one that I took grades on right. and did that all through school. And, and after I got my grade eight, I was sick of the instrument, frankly, and sold it oh. uh, straight away. And then, not very many years later, I was auditioning for a part 
at the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool, and they needed a clarinet player. So I had to go and hire a clarinet and practice madly and get the embouchure back, which is the tightness of your mouth, the way that you can control the reed in the mouthpiece. So I hired this clarinet, and I practiced and practiced and practiced, and then I went and did this audition with my little rental clarinet with me. And we did all this workshop improvisation during the audition and so forth. And at the end of it, I said to the musical director, well, do you not want me to play the clarinet? And he went, no, 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 no. He said, if you're grade eight, we don't need to hear it. Oh. <laughs> so, although I, I did get the job, which started me out in a relationship with the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool, which I, I shall always cherish, one of the finest repertory theatres. Great place. I think people listening to this probably assume that you were born and bred in Scotland, but that's not the case, is it? You... I was dragged up in Scotland, but born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and then... When I was four years old, we moved to Watford, so it's something of a departure. And then my father's job took him to Scotland, where we stayed during all of my education. So from the age of five to the age of 18, when I went to university, grew up in Scotland. So born in America, English parents. So I had a funny transatlantic accent as a little boy. But then when I went to school in East Fife, I quickly learned that if I was going to not be beaten to a pulp on a daily basis I better find a way of fitting in and one of the ways of doing that was to learn to speak the broad five dialect that they speak there mm. this was in the 60s when I mean the, the place has changed a lot but at that point it wasn't <clears throat> particularly inviting of strangers I mean if you lived a mile away you were a foreign right so I learned to speak with this broad Scottish accent Fife accent at school but then at home would temper that accent and it would be much more Soft, because my father couldn't understand it. He lived in that place for 15 years and never understood a word the natives spoke. Wow. <laughs> Being a man from Nottingham. <laughs> so I think if you have that fluidity as a child in your accent, for whatever reason, you have an ear for it. So I've always been able to listen to accents and replicate them. And so when I heard about this character, Alistair Gregg, they were looking for a 26-year-old Scottish clarinet player, and I was 26, so I kind of emphasised the Scottishness in the audition. Greg came from Perth, if memory serves. So I kind of modified the Fife accent to make it a bit more Perthy. But I'm sure people from Perth would go, oh, it's not Perth accent at all. Do they sound like that? And when did the acting bug first enter your life? I'd always had that. My parents um, were good enough to indulge me and uh, take me along to children's theatre projects and so forth as a child, which I just adored it from the start. I adored going to see shows. I adored watching stuff on television. I never had any doubt. When I was younger, I wanted to be a cowboy and a detective. Well, I suppose I did end up being a detective of sort. And but, your character worked with a lot of cowboys. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> very true. <laughs> yeah. My father felt it was very important for me to take a degree. So I went to university first before going to drama school. So went to university first, then went to drama school as a mature student. Not that I was particularly mature. What um, did you study at uni? English and drama. Yeah, that's all I ever wanted to do. Yeah, I, I liked doing music as well, but I didn't want to do music as an academic subject. I always mm. liked to be a little bit more free with the music and make up my own stuff. But inevitably, I found myself, once I had qualified, I uh, found myself getting involved in musical theatre. And the Everyman in particular in Liverpool at that time used a lot of actor musicians. So uh, a lot of their shows, the cast were the musicians. So your, your orchestra wasn't in a pit, your orchestra was on stage all at the same time. Oh, cool. Which became very a very kind of popular style of putting on musical theatre in the 80s and 
early 90s that would have been yeah but that was just absolutely completely up my street to you know have actor musicians you're, you're you're working with people who are exactly in your milieu which is both music and drama so that fantastic time I had there and who were your main influences as you as you grew up in terms of inspiration when I was growing up television it was a time when there was still a huge amount of creativity in television and budgets were, were bigger I think and the advertising pot wasn't so widely spread because there were fewer channels mm. so you had the lights of Brideshead revisited you had the lights of Jewel and the Crown which I'm not sure we'll ever see the like again of, of those kind of massive budgets mm. So I remember being very thrilled by those, and yeah, I suppose you know you think as a young actor, well, that's the kind of thing I want to be in one day. But of course, as one grew older and television changed, and the ITV franchise auction happened, and all of that made a massive difference to independent television. Were there any particular influences? Again, when I was young, uh, I remember seeing there was a Scottish theatre group, uh, kind of. Um, political theatre group called 784 which was run and started by a very influential chap at the time called John McGrath and it, 784 was based upon the fact that 7% of the population owned 84% of the wealth, I think that was so it did a lot of kind of socially aware plays which were fantastic and they would tour town halls and I mean, you know it wasn't number one tours or anything but again I remember seeing some of that stuff and thinking that is fantastic I want to be a part of that so I suppose you know, I had Catholic tastes so. I wanted to do highfalutin TV and also I wanted to play village halls. Yeah, yeah. I was happy to do anything. And you were working in Plymouth when you heard about... I was actually, yeah, funnily enough. I had been asked to go and be in this show, which was an adaptation of the Fosdyke saga at the Drum Theatre, which is the studio theatre. And I said, no, I don't want to be in it, but I'll do, I'll do the music for it. And I'd said to myself, this is the last music job, I'm just going to concentrate on acting, because the music was taking over, I felt. And I have to say, thankfully, I turned it down, because the guy who played my part that I was due to do is actor Roy Brandon, who was a million times better than me. Roy's one of the funniest and most adaptable actors. So I did the music for that, and during that time, I had a call from a friend of ours, who I think, if memory serves, was in the casting department of Brookside, and said that the bill were looking for this 26-year-old Scottish clarinet player. So I literally phoned them up. I didn't have representation at the time. I phoned them up and said, well, I am a 26-year-old Scottish clarinet player. And they kind of, I think they were slightly thrown <laughs> by the fact that I met all three criteria. So they went, oh, you better come in then. So I did. And I think they'd sort of, they'd broadened their... Because they couldn't find a 26-year-old Scottish Grand player, they kind of broadened their scope a bit, and they were thinking about trumpet players and all this. <laughs> and they had a vision of this Scotsman who was going to be big and burly and bearded. Right. That was what I, I later discovered, and none of those things. <laughs> Listening to John Isles's podcast, it was interesting that he and I think he said Tony Scannell were only booked for two or three... Me too, I was only booked for two or three episodes to start off with. It was, a, it was oh, just a thrill when they said, you know, they want me to do more. But it was an interesting thing, the clarinet idea. The idea was that he was part of the Met Band. But later on I met people who had been in the Met Band and they said actually there were no serving officers in the Met Band. You just don't have the time to do both things. So the clarinet thing was quietly dropped. Not least because how often can you have... I mean, if you're chasing a villain down the street and you're tootling away on your clarinet, it ain't going to happen. 
Later, he became arguably the most dedicated and focused officer of a lot. The very idea of him having another life outside of Sun yeah, Hill. Yeah. Uh, they, they did phase that out, but it's, it's quite fun, isn't it, in those early episodes? And even at one stage, in one episode, Chris Ellison picks up your clarinet That's and right. gives it a toot. That's right. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. What was it like joining... I mean, t- 28 years old, and you'd had a handful of TV roles, hadn't you? I mean, you'd... you'd... Oh, yeah, smaller than a handful. A right. Very, a thimbleful. You, well, you're, you're like a new boy at school, and you do have to fit in, and it takes... <laughs> not quite the same as going to primary school at age five, but yes, you are a new boy, and you have to find your feet and make your friends and all the rest of it. But that being said, the bill was always a bit like ensemble theatre on telly, so even though there were those characters and actors who were more featured than others nonetheless everybody had a fair crack of the whip so you were never a sort of you were never a supporting character you always had I mean, sometimes you were you know you were a third superior carrier from the left because that's what you had to do but you did have the big feature episodes where you could really get your teeth into it so it was like ensemble performing and therefore that kind of bled through to the feeling of the cast who were who were I think back on it I mean during my ten years there, there were many, many regular cast members, and obviously some of them you're not going to get on so well with, but by and large we all rubbed on extremely well. Very supportive, very supportive to guest actors coming in. Mm. Very supportive to guest actors coming in. Friendly, and ten years of laughing, ridiculous laughing, is one of my predominant memories. Sometimes it was... You know, you're on a night shoot in January, and that could be a bit grim, but it's still yeah. not like working in a coal mine. Mostly, we just we we did laugh an awful lot. But you were still going into a, an established dynamic, and it takes a while for you to get used to them, them to get used to you, and find out what you like and all the rest of it. But it didn't take too long. Chris Ellison Burnside, of course, a, a big character as as a character in the bill, but also Chris is a big character, and I was a bit in awe of him. No, but I was a lot in awe of him to start off with. And we had to do a fast drive-up. So we basically took the car around the corner on action, and I was driving. We had to drive really fast around this corner and arrive into camera shot and then start doing some dialogue. And this was, I think, my first driving shot. And just before they called action, this milk float <laughs> this milk float came past. No. So here am I thinking, oh, I've got to impress... The crew and, and Chris yeah. and this milk so we didn't come round fast we came round extremely yeah, slowly yeah, yeah. and of course I'm thinking oh, I'm going to be in trouble what should I do should I overtake this milk float <laughs> of course he couldn't care less <laughs> but I, I got on very well with Chris he was he's a, he's a funny guy he's got a good sense of humour in full sail you didn't want to get on the wrong side of Chris but he was very supportive of the cast so I remember early days we had no kind of nowhere to go to to learn lines we were kind of on the street which was hard I mean we weren't particularly starry it has to be said none of us were but you kind of need to be able to get away from something we had no kind of Winnebago's or anything in those Mm. days and eventually after much beefing and whining we got this old library van which was carpeted throughout including the ceiling weirdly so we had this library van and some chairs in it and it really wasn't very nice and also one Winnie Baker we were on location and we had the library van and we were sitting on our plastic chairs and there thinking well you know it's better than being out on the street and Chris got wind that the Winnie Baker was parked up in the car park and wasn't on location and he got on the phone 
and within a very, very short amount of time, that Winnebago came hurtling round the corner. <laughs> and thereafter, we had Winnebagos. Again, one doesn't want to sound um, grand about these things, but it did make a difference. Especially as the bill got more and more popular, you couldn't be on the streets because you just get hassled all the time yeah, by yeah. people and kids and all the rest of it. And you need time to rest, is actually important, to eat and to go over lines. We weren't being lovies about it. Well, one of your uh, early episodes called Free Wheel. Oh, yes, yes. And, and you're in a hotel undercover watching Terence Harvey. Oh, Terence Harvey. He's a very nice guy. He was so good at waiting around, because most of acting on TV and film is waiting. He was just loved chatting to people. He's a very interesting guy. He used to be an accountant. Very nice guy. I remember him with a lot of fondness, actually. Terry Harvey. How involved were the actors in the scripts on a, on a regular basis? Not much. As time went by, you had a little bit more influence, perhaps, but not much. Mostly that, that process was done in the editing department, in the script department. And I think a lot of what they did, they looked at episodes that went out and how you, what you were doing as an actor and how the relationships were developing amongst the different cast members, and they would develop accordingly. But certainly at that stage, where as a new bean as I was, absolutely no influence whatsoever. Um, I just did what I was told. Well, as a writer, it seems to be a fan of Greg, Christopher Russell. His scripts, you're always number one character. He seems to like Greg. What a very nice man Christopher Russell is. <laughs> yeah. Must have been so exciting when you. Uh, uh, completely, it, it was like Christmas when you got when you, you would go to your pigeonhole and get a script and realise that it was kind of your your time. Thrilling. And an episode in particular, Greg versus Taylor. Mm, uh, yeah. Is that the Derek New York one? Yeah. What a brilliant episode. Yeah, that, that was quite tough to do. The bill had a style that was well established, which was. In fact, the bill was fairly pioneering in using handheld cameras, predominantly. Even interiors were largely handheld. Sometimes they'd be on tripods, but very rarely on rails or anything like that. Generally, it was this wobble vision idea because it was sort of drama documentary. That was the that was yeah. the flavour of it. And I always thought that was, and also of course the, the thing about it always being about the the police's professional lives. It never went into their home lives during my time, anyway. And I, I totally supported that ethos. I thought that absolutely made the bill different, made it more interesting. So you could never have camera shots and camera angles that were unrealistic, mm. that couldn't be part of that sort of documentary gathering style. And there was a director of that episode who really did not understand the notion. And he had a, a kind of separate set built within the premises where we were. And had all these wacky shots, one of which was actually through the ceiling. It was a false ceiling. The camera was poking through the ceiling as, as a top shot. That went against the ethos yeah. of the document. You know, you'd never get a documentary cameraman being able to do that. And, no. and actually, I mean, the ceiling had to be there. You couldn't have a through the ceiling shot because, because it didn't represent real life. So we did that first day's filming, and the producer saw the rushes and went, none of it's usable. None of it is usable. So we had to do that episode in four days rather than five. If you recall the episode, I had like a page and a half of dialogue, and then Derek would go, what time's lunch? That's right. So he had, he had very little to learn where I had these pages and pages and pages of dialogue. <laughs> yeah. So to cram that into four days was, was, was difficult. So it, it wasn't as good as it could have been because we were rushed in the end. I do think it's a brilliant episode. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, there's a wonderful moment 
because you're, you're playing it so above a book. Greg is pristine in his assembling the evidence, and everyone's telling you, you can't get this guy, you know? You go to the bathroom and just comb your hair. And it's like, I'm not going to put a foot wrong, there's not going to be a hair out of place. And it's a lovely little moment. Like they, they didn't always give characters, especially later. They seem to cram in more scenes, a lot more exposition for later episodes, yeah, but yeah. I love the pace of those early ones. And it's a good one for you and John Ars because he's... Okay. You, you you have a go at him telling him to be a bit more positive. Yeah. As a character, that would. I forgot that John was in that. He must have been bored off his <laughs> box during that week. I mean, he's a lovely man, John, so he was extremely supportive. As a real person, he was extremely yeah. supportive. He must have been crawling up the walls with boredom during, <laughs> during that week. And it's your first episode where you get top billing. So as a, wow. as a young actor... You're in a hit series, top billing. Yeah, yeah. It must have been an awesome time well, in your com- life. Completely, completely. I think the producer was Michael Simpson yes. of that episode, and he and I went off to a couple of police stations to do some research on interview techniques. And in fact, I did a kind of mini course where we were allowed to go with a couple of other people going along and actually be interviewed ourselves. Ah. And that was fascinating. So we did do some work on that episode to try and yeah, really make sure we knew what we were talking about. Because Pace, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act of 1984, I think it was, was very figurative in that episode. Yeah. And also, in terms of, again, the bill showing what police life was really like, wanted to highlight the fact that the police are it's not the old days of the Sweeney or whatever right. where you can just see you know duff people up and say if you don't tell me what I want to know yeah yeah you know, yeah so there was a huge amount of procedure to, to follow and that if you didn't follow that procedure your case that was it your case would be thrown out and of course that remains so to this day so yes and indeed we were had the thrill of reading some of the Pace Act. <laughs> yeah. That was fun. A lot of that interview technique was based on sales and things like buy signs. And so when the police had been looking at uh, improving their interviewing techniques, they'd looked at how sales, how, how you would persuade somebody to buy something that perhaps they were reluctant to buy in the first place. And so they would talk about buy signs in the interviewing technique, so a buy sign is kind of when you're realising that your interviewee is beginning to come round, is perhaps oh, beginning yeah. to, there are cracks beginning to show in the armour. Yeah, <clears throat> in that episode, Derek starts folding his arm. He goes, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's a bit of defensive um, body yeah. language. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Gosh, I'd forgotten about some of the, the details of that. You start a nice period of, of Greg being made up to acting DI. There's an episode called Return of the Prodigal Son. Roach comes back to discover that Greg is acting DI. And mm-hmm. Tony Scanlon does petulance very well. He's really un- unhappy in that situation. But it's, in fact, later on, Greg kind of then gets in that position himself of it's my time to be DI, mm-hmm. but they don't they don't give it to yeah, him. So yeah, yeah. It's quite interesting when you look at like a sort of four year period of the early promise, and and, it, and you, you play it so well. I mean, you, by all rights, the character should have been DI, really. Well, it's interesting you should say that. I don't think that Greg ever should have been DI. The, the character of the DI had to be, in terms of television drama, it had to be really big. Greg was more of a... Yes, he had his moments in the, in the spotlight, but he was also very much part of the jigsaw puzzle that made the relationships work, particularly the Burnside-Greg relationship and also the, the Greg-Toshlands relationship. Because Greg was always a thorn in the side of Burnside, because he was... A, bloody straight lace and dour and 
and had no sense of humour, or as far as you know, they were concerned. Yeah. So I, I think that actually, if Greg had become DI, it wouldn't have worked. I think it, there wasn't enough pizzazz in that character to make it an interesting DI long term. Mm. It could have made it interesting in terms of what might reflect real life, but at the end of the day, you've actually you've got a teledrama here. This is entertainment. Well, you're acting DI again in an episode called Against the Odds, where you and John Isles have a fantastic clash because he's used Burnside's snout, and you're like, this man's poison. John Isles says, I've just used my initiative, and you said, initiative's all very well and good if you're dealing with a gas meter. This is major crime that we're dealing with here. <laughs> What was it like to playing an outsider? But presumably that wasn't the case with the cast. You were a, fat, a CID family? Yeah, very much so. There was a, there was a kind of light-hearted rivalry between uniform and non-uniform, which was just fun. But no, it, you were very much a... The whole cast was a family. I remember I'm a jazz fan. Oh, yeah, I, like music. I like all music, but yeah. I like jazz. And there's an American jazz guitarist called Pat Metheny who's a genius when I was in the green room one day I was reading some paper and I said oh Pat Metheny's coming and he's playing Hammersmith Odeon or whatever it was called and suddenly he went oh I'd like to see that and somebody else piped oh I'd like to see that and I went seriously you want to see Pat Metheny and they went yeah 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 so I organised I don't know 10 tickets or whatever and we all mob handed went down to see Pat Metheny and at the end of it we went for a drink and they turned on me and went that was the worst <laughs> concert we have ever been to well, I didn't ask you to come <laughs> So we did, yeah, we did used to do things uh, together. And we also had quite good, we had a cricket team and we had a football team. Yeah, we we used to do charity dues as well. So yeah, we did socialise a bit as well. We We were pretty tight, I think, it's true to say. Well, fast forward a couple of years, you've moved to the Merton Studios. You're in the title sequence, which must have been a nice moment. I think so. I, I, I can't remember. I yeah. can't remember. I think, again, this stuff would happen yes. without you knowing about it. Right. So, so you'd kind of go, oh, I'll watch tonight's episode, and then you would appear, and you go, oh, yes, that's nice. So, yes, no, it was nice. Of course it was, yes. I mean, of all the detectives, Tony Scanlon's like his Columbo Mac. I mean, you, you, you had a, a long grey fetching number. And, I did, yeah. And, and uh, quite often wore leather gloves as well. <laughs> You remember stuff that I don't. Why would you do that? Maybe he thought he was Gestapo or something secretly. You had a lovely couple of episodes with Brona Gallagher as your snout. An episode called Somebody Special. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's her first one. Hugh Higginson describes her as a 24 carat slag brought in. (laughs) Lovely. (laughs) Yeah. It's a brilliant, more or less, two hander in her cell. What Mm. was Brona like the worst? Oh, she was an absolute delight. She was lovely. She comes across as quite feisty, and she is, I suppose, but she's also a sweetheart. Again, we laughed a lot. But she's a hard-working actress, you know, she's um, awfully good. She's had a cracking career. It, it, was, it was a joy working with Brona um, on both occasions. I remember both episodes quite well. It, there was a really interesting dynamic in the, in the relationship between Greg and her character where there was a kind of sexual frisson going on there, yeah. deliberately, so in terms of the writing. And I thought that was really interesting to play. Another sort of uh, sexual frisson is in another episode, this time with Sarah Alexander. An oh, ex- golly, Sarah Alexander, yeah. Who was in Smack the Bone. That's right, she? yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a nice moment where we actually do get a sneak peek at your personal life because she mm-hmm. insists on having a drink. Uh, she finally works out your name's Alistair. 
So, are you married, Alistair? No. Are you courting? And you say, yes. Now, do you mind if we get a move on? You, know, you don't like this sort of inquisition. So that was a favourite. And then you head up Operation Bumblebee. You become yeah, like the burglary right. specialist on, yeah. on COD. Which was great in terms of uh, the character's development. And it, it meant that there was a real through line for yeah. the character. And I got quite busy as an actor during that time playing that part no that was it was interesting it was good fun and it meant when you're an actor in a series like that inevitably there's times when you, you're redundant you're not required mm. which when they're paying you to be at home is fantastic it's a huge privilege but nonetheless you're still an actor and what you do is act and there's a kind of frustration that you're not being busy doing what you want to do um, so when you were busy doing what you want to do that was when you were kind of fulfilled you were motivated it was exciting and yeah mm. even though it meant early starts and all the rest of it nonetheless you were doing what you really wanted to do more than anything else in the world so that Operation Bumblebee through line that storyline meant I was I was really busy which mm. I, mean, I was a very happy bunny during that time Was it a strange time as well because by that point Chris Ellison left Tony Scannell left Nuala Conwell had left and you had a lot of new colleagues and <clears throat> But by then of course you're you're kind of in the sixth form as it were so you're you're one of the old boys by then so you're much more established and so forth but it was you know there was constant change inevitably people it was time for people to go either through their own choice or because the character had run its course um, and there were new people coming in and did you feel that happened with you when my time came to an end at the bill it was a time when they were beginning to talk about the new bill and producers were coming in and saying, we need to revamp this, we need to... I remember having a meeting in the canteen where a producer who shall remain nameless said, I'm going to make you all stars. None of you are stars, I'm going to make you all stars. Because he, was <clears throat> he wanted the bill to be much more dramatic. And this, the executive producer for the vast amount of my time was Michael Chapman, who I have a huge amount of respect for. And he oversaw the programme during the ITV, the auction, the franchise auction. Thames lost its franchise and we became Pearson for a while and then I think we became something else. And, and the slots that we were in, three times a week, those slots were amongst the most high paying for advertisers. So many, many other producers desperately wanted those slots. And Michael was very adept at playing the political game and making sure that the bill retained those slots. But he was also very good at making sure that the bill remained true to its original ethos, which was the drama documentary, policemen's professional lives. But at the end of my time, it was clear that they were going to head, take a turn down a more soapy route. Two things. One, I didn't want particularly to go down that route. And two... I think they thought Greg doesn't really fit that mm. mould. Mm. So time for him to go. So so I think that the time is absolutely right for Greg to wander off into the sunset. There was quite a gap between your penultimate episode and your final episode. Well, that's because the executive producer was a numpter and told me in the January that my time had come and... I wasn't particularly sorry, but forgot to check my contract. <laughs> I said six months to run with my contract. So I said, well, it's, it's fine, you know, it's, I'm sorry, but you know I've still got six months to run with my contract. And he went, ooh, 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 ooh. So they sort of didn't quite know what to do with me for six months. I was happy as Larry. I had, I had some ideas I wanted to you know, pursue, and I was being paid to... Yeah, because there are literally four episodes 
who you don't have a line of dialogue and it's such a shame for a brilliant character yeah. and, and you're in like you know there'll be a, a ra- one, one episode is like seven CID going to like raid a narrow boat I mean it's crazy um, yeah. it's you and Kevin Lloyd just sort of like in the background yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they what are we doing have, there you deserved it was an better o- it was an odd time and, and I did feel like an outsider then because you know it was like the rest of the world was carrying on in a direction and you were just kind of waving them goodbye but it was still somehow being towed along and yeah, yeah it, it was pretty frustrating but then you know you're not going to turn down six months wages thanks very much well, it's no. like yeah. mega gardening <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> the character kind of just petered out mm. it's quite a nice scene Simon Rouse is trying to explain he doesn't agree with his decision about Greg going back into uniform and, yeah. like, and yeah. you just say nothing in the scene four years previously where Greg is saying well, I should have been DI and he said oh, so you've got a very promising future and you're next on the list and, and that's happened to us all hasn't it in yeah, life yeah, where someone's yeah. made promises to you and it doesn't, it doesn't happen, happen so yeah, yeah. I felt you deserved more of a blaze of glory to go well, out that's if I'm kind of you it's yes. true because yeah. you know, I think <clears throat> it would have been nice to have some kind of closure but that was a time of change yeah. and, and I, I was definitely you know I was no, no longer part of those plans so so they weren't going to spend time and effort mm. doing a kind of closure episode. Mm. They had other fish to fry at that point, which is fine. Yeah, I do. And, and all... Did you have like a leaving do for yourself? Or... No. no, 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 no. It was again because of a time of change. The kind of leaving do's had sort of fallen by the wayside because there were a lot of people coming and going yeah. at that point. Yeah, and also because of this protracted, you know, I would reappear on set and they go oh you're still here <laughs> sort of thing so they yeah wow and then eventually I wasn't so no there was no <laughs> there was no big party and how about life they may have had a party without me of course <laughs> to celebrate me I haven't gone how was life for you then presumably you're in something like the bill as you say when you're filming you get recognised all the time how would your life change in terms of a, a recognition point of view a fame point of view and how does that affect a person, a human being, when you become very well, famous? It happens over time, so you have a little bit of time to get used to it. I, I was not a good celebrity. I didn't, I didn't enjoy celebrity. Mm. I, didn't, I, I never minded people coming up and saying hello and, and being polite. And so, so, but some people don't know how to behave like that, and I used to find that difficult to deal with, mm. when people were just plain rude and get a bit hot under the collar about that, which you shouldn't have done, you should have just let it pass. Obviously, it's frustrating when you go shopping, for instance, and you can't get round the supermarket because you're constantly being stopped. And at one point, it was like that. You just could not kind of move. Mostly with people being very nice, very polite, but you just it would take three hours to go and buy half a dozen eggs. I was sort of conflicted, I suppose, because part of me was frustrated by that, and the other part was thinking, well, you know, I should be bloody grateful for this opportunity and don't be such an ass for being grumpy about it. By and large, I tried to make sure I did my bit and do go along and open charity do's and the fates and all the rest and put myself out there in order to use that celebrity to do some good. I don't. I, I was never somebody who welcomed celebrity. Some people love it. They love being in the limelight, and they're very good at it. Uh, and I was never particularly good at it. I'm, I'm a bit more retiring than that. I, mm. I prefer being a little bit more background. I mean, even even these days when Joe and I are out playing. Uh, I'm a bit of a reluctant performer. Mm. I love playing live, but I, I always enjoy it much more when I'm, I'm doing it and have done it than when I'm about to do it. Right. 
I don't know what that is. But yeah, but that's all part of falling out of love with acting and, mm. uh, and why I decided to quit. Mm. Uh, because uh, the world had changed a lot in the ten years I'd been in the bill, goodness me, but the world of television and theatre had changed an awful lot. And after a few years of kind of being back in the general pool of actors, I found that I wasn't enjoying it at all anymore. Mm. I really wasn't. I did my fair share of pantomimes. I got to a point where I thought, why am I, why am I doing this? I'm, I'm dragging myself to work, dragging myself through it and going through the motions. I'm not even being very good. So let's go off and do something else for God's sake. How did that feel? Was it a, a release when you decided to stop and, and move on? I was very... For- when I finally, finally stopped, um, I was very fortunate in as much as... By that time, two of my wife's brothers had started a business which supplied mobility equipment to charitable organisations. I'd worked for a charity prior to that, on and off, which was to do with providing mobility equipment to disabled people. And... Frank, who was MD of the company, had said to me that if ever I was interested in joining the company, you know, there would be an opening for me, particularly at that point, because I'd developed quite a lot of IT skills at that point anyway, as a kind of subsidiary, because I was interested. So in 2005, I, I made the final decision, went, right, that's it, and stepped straight into a job with Frank and Jim's company, which I stayed with for 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Which was great which was absolutely great. So I was very fortunate. I mean, I kind of dabbled around with bits and bobs before that, but I was very fortunate to, to step straight into a secure job, if you like. It was very different, very different. But the work was great. It took me to some interesting places, including Taiwan. I went to Taiwan to see a company, manufacturer called Kimco. They're actually, one, I think they're the fifth biggest manufacturer of motor scooters in the world, but they're not very big in the UK. They're massive in Europe and Asia. But Kimco also make mobility scooters. And uh, at that point, we were the biggest UK seller, supplier. And we were therefore invited over to Taiwan to, for a week to uh, tour the factory and generally be shown the delights of Taiwan, which is a fascinating country. I knew nothing about it before I went, but it's yeah, a fascinating country. So that kind of thing. And also, uh, when I was talking to you earlier on about the co- you know corporate days at the Oval mm. and all that, that was all part of business. And a massive privilege to be able to be involved in that kind of thing as part of your job so was it strange when you put acting to bed that your daughter then wanted to follow in your footsteps and and what was your no no i I, with my three daughters i've always wanted them to follow their dream and be happy Uh, that's all i ever wish for them and i'm blessed with three stunningly beautiful daughters and it helps in the acting industry if you're stunningly beautiful Mm. And Tilly is, uh, so, you know, I think... And also, she's awfully good. You know, but part of what I think, the reason why I stopped acting, and part of the... When you leave a long-term series, you're thinking, well, you know, I, I've got this experience, I've got stock now. I should... Be, this is going to probably stand me in good stead. I will undoubtedly get more work. And then with that, work is really sluggish, really not very good. You begin to think to yourself, well... What are the reasons behind that? Some of it is typecasting, of course, because you've been in one series for a long time, and then you think, well, maybe, maybe I wasn't actually that brilliant at it. So maybe you know, maybe the reason is that I wasn't as versatile as I could have been, and all the rest of it. Who knows? But there comes a, a sort of point at which you go, time to hand it on to the next generation. Let mm. her do it. I think she's better actor than I was. 
certainly better looking than I ever was. And I think she has the potential to be a huge success. Well, what was it like for you to be asked nearly 20 years after you finished you know, to talk about the series and what is your message to fans of the build because honestly people will be thrilled to listen to your memories I'm thrilled to be talking to you it's very and kind of you not and only then... did you play one of the great characters but you are one of the great actors to have been in it and I know you, you wonder why your career didn't that. I'm bemused because <laughs> you were genuinely brilliant in the series oh, well, thank you very much for saying that um well, so, it, ten years of my life I spent doing, doing that series, and it was a great time. I had a great time. But 20 years on from when I left, which is a lot of time, I do kind of compartmentalise it. It was then, it was the past. I now do something so radically different, which I also enjoy enormously, that that was then, and this is now. And it's great, fantastic, what a fantastic opportunity. You, no one will ever take it away from you. And the great thing is that it's recorded on video for posterity not that I have to say I've never seen any of them but um, but it's there if one wants it I find it extraordinary you didn't know you were on a DVD cover until today I, no I, I, I'm just I, I'm not a sentimental person when it comes to the past mm. I tend to look forward all the time perhaps one day in my dotage I will sit in front of someone <laughs> shout at the TV yeah. uh, and I've, I do have a box of videos in which probably don't work anymore my garage because they've been in various different characters but I, I kind of kept them for grandchildren so, so they can point, yeah. point and laugh at granddad oh. at some point although you know, I know they're available on DVD and everything I, have, I genuinely have no interest in watching all that old stuff mm. weird I don't know where it is it's not because I'm bitter it's not because I reject it in any way it's just actually funnily enough having talked to you about this <laughs> there is a part of me that thinks actually it might be quite interesting yeah, I'd rather watch a good movie. <laughs> well, if people want to donate a couple of quid to a, a charity, is there anything that's particularly close to your heart? Well, well, if somebody felt moved to do so, there's uh, a charity called WizKids, which does fantastic work uh, for children with disabilities who need, in particular, powered mobility aids. Right. And having worked in that realm for over ten years... Uh, it's close to my heart. And WizKids is a fantastic charity. It's fantastically run. As with all charities, there's, a, there's an element of having to pay for its own costs. Mm. And, and that's always a, a difficult thing to balance with the public. When the public give a pound to a charity, they want to feel that their pound is being used in its entirety for helping the end user. But, mm. but the, the charity's running costs also have to be paid. And that's, that's a difficult message to get across. But one thing that's always impressed me about WizKids is how they manage to keep their running costs so low and their ability to help their beneficiaries, their relative spend is so high, especially with powered mobility equipment, which can be fiendishly expensive, you know, £15,000 for a specialist wheelchair for a a child who needs. And, of course, children are are growing, so the £15,000 when they're eight will have to be re-spent when they're ten, potentially because they'll have outgrown the the vehicle they're in. So, yes, if anyone feels like checking out WizKids... uh, well worth doing. All remains for me to say, Andrew McIntosh, thank you for thank joining you, me Oliver. on the Bill podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. What a lovely man. Thank you, Andrew McIntosh. Andrew's charity is Wiz Kids. That's Wiz hyphen Kids with a Z dot org dot UK. 
You can hear samples of Joe and Andrew's music on bloodygoodmusic.co.uk. Get in touch, buy an album. Never mind the weather, never mind the rain or cold. I'd show you just how good my arms could be in keeping you warm. Then you might just forget that I'm married and old. I thought that I had all I ever wanted and all I ever needed, but lately I'm concerned. Next time on the Bill Podcast. I'm just looking at a picture of Ben Roberts. He was funny. <laughs> God, he was outrageous. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't keep a straight face when you were... Or, or Peter. When I did scenes with Peter and Ben, that we used to get into trouble because um, we just corpse. We just laugh. <laughs> and the director's going mad because they're under such pressure, directors, to get you know a, an episode out in a week. And there's these actors pissing about laughing because we can't look in each other's faces. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great, great times, yeah.